is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. I destroyed the Amorites before them though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and I led you 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel? declares the Lord. But you gave, you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape. The strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest of warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel against the whole family that I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Let's pray. Father, please... Give us the grace to listen to these hard words from the prophet Amos so that we would be saved. Amen. Well, good evening again. Uh, we're going to be examining that passage. And hasn't it been great to be served by those who have been reading that for us so powerfully? Um, but now I'm going to talk about something a little silly for a second. One of the uh, tried and tested plot lines <clears throat> of action and sci-fi movies is the theme of the chosen one who has to battle to realise his or her destiny. Uh, I recently watched The Matrix again 
And it's a great example. Uh, Is Neo the one or isn't he? Can he live up to his calling or will he fail? Now, it's just a repeat of Star Wars, of course. Uh, Luke, the force is strong with this one, has to overcome the incredible obstacles in his way to restore balance. Too old, too old, says Yoda. And is he? We don't know. There's that great moment, just to just, just entertain me for a second. There's that great moment when he's training on Dagobah and uh, he has to lift his spaceship by the power of the force up out of the slime and he fails. I can't do it. Now, in fact, for all of you who I've just alienated, it's not just sci-fi. Um, the Lion King has exactly the same plot line. When will Simba return and fulfill his destiny as king? Awesome stuff. Now, the roots of this theme of the Chosen One, uh, of course, lie in our culture's acquaintance with Judaism and Christianity, uh, with the idea that God is a God who elects, who chooses a people for himself. Christians understand themselves to be chosen by God. We heard about it in that first reading from 1 Peter, didn't we? You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I wonder how you felt as we read that, inspired and honoured, perhaps. It is indeed an inspiring calling. But there is another side to this theme. There is a darker side to it, less uplifting, and we, meet, we need to make sure that we've taken it in. The other side is put starkly before us in chapter 2 of the book of Amos, where we see how God's election of his people, his choice of them, tragically only ended up exposing their sinfulness. We've been looking at Amos for a couple of weeks now, uh, and it is not a pleasant experience, but it's good for us. And today's passage is no exception. I I really think we we desperately need to pay attention to these words because it's both a profound warning for a society that thinks of itself as post-Christian and a safeguard against the kind of naive confidence that can so easily be a part of Christian churches. So please come with me as we have a look at Amos chapter 2 from verse 4. It would be great to have it open. I think it's page 906. Is that right? Um, I'm going to spend the first half of the sermon making sure we've understood this passage properly and then turn to ask uh, what it might have to say to us today. I'm going to say some pretty heavy things, uh, so it'd be great to see where where they're coming from. We pick up our passage where uh, an eerie feeling must have come over Amos's first hearers. As we looked at last week, Amos has announced judgment on all the nations that surround Israel using a set pattern for three sins for four. I'll not revoke the punishment. Um, But now the judgment comes in upon God's own people. Uh, First in verse four, the nation of Judah. Now, I need to make sure we're all on roughly the same page in terms of understanding what's happening. The year is something like 760 B.C., Uh, The people group that God brought up out of Egypt, uh, which under King David had been one nation, 
have become divided into two kingdoms, Judah in the south and Israel in the north. And uh, Amos was from Judah in the south, but his prophecy was mainly directed to the northern kingdom, Israel. And these two kingdoms had become more and more separate, distant. It even fought wars with one another. Uh, If you want to know more about that, can I just come and talk to me afterwards? There's lots of different things you can do to just get your bearings. So verses 4 to 5, which we began with, they're directed at the southern kingdom, Judah, uh, which to Amos's hearers would still have been someone else, if I can put it that way. Uh, But they would have started to be a bit uncomfortable because this was much closer to home. More importantly, the reasons they were judged for really ought to have made them get very nervous. Judah is rebuked in verse 4 for rejecting the law of the Lord and not keeping his decrees and for following false gods. Judah is under God's judgment, that is, because it has turned its back on God. That is what in fact happened in the centuries after David's reign. God's people increasingly allowed foreign worship to become part of their life. Now, it's just worth pausing on this point. It's not the main point of the sermon, but I just want to pause on it because there's something significant here. We should notice the difference between the things the nations were rebuked for and the things God's people are rebuked for. The surrounding nations were not judged for forgetting the law of the Lord. But as we saw last week, they were judged for violence, injustice, abuse, and so on. The nations, that is, are judged, I think, according to moral principles that they ought to have adhered to just because they're human beings. But Judah should have known better. Judah is judged by a different standard. And this is an important reminder, I think, that God's judgment is not unfair. God will not hold people to a standard they cannot possibly know about. God's judgment is not unfair. And I think this should be a hint that when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, which he will... No one will be able to claim that they were treated unfairly or that they were judged by an unreasonable standard. But let's move on. Uh, Finally, in verse 6, Amos reaches the climax of this whole series of judgments. He's circled in around the surrounding nations and now he comes right to the centre and does not hold back. Israel, too, his hearers, will not escape judgment. But here the formula is massively expanded. All the other nations got two or three verses. Israel get a dozen. What Israel is judged for is the way the poor are being treated. Have a look at verse 6. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. That is for ridiculously cheap prices. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl. Now, we don't actually know exactly what that was about, but I think the most likely thing is it's a reference to powerful members in a household abusing their servant girl. It's Again, it's about the poor. And so they profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. 
Now, I need to make sure we've got what's going on here. You see, the problem with these things is not just that they're cruel, though they are. They're awful. But also that they are explicitly what the law forbids. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, Keep with Amos, but turn in your Bibles back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 22. 23, actually. Um, Exodus 23, uh, I'm just going to show you a few things in Exodus. This is the law of God, the law that Israel knew about. 23.6, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. When they deny justice to the oppressed, it's a deliberate rejection of the kind of law code that God gave them. And just look back again to the previous chapter, excuse me, in verse 22, uh, sorry, chapter 22, verse 25. Here's another law. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like a money lender. Charge him no interest. If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset because his cloak is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. That's the law God gave his people. And so when when in Amos, verse 8... He describes them lying down on garments taken in pledge. It was an explicit rejection of of a provision in the law that God had given to protect the needy. Um, Just by the way, don't let anybody ever write the Old Testament law off in a simplistic way as primitive and kind of nasty. It was actually, in many ways, a brilliant law code. Yes, it was for a different society, But it was anything but brutal. It was incredibly humane. The point Amos is making, though, is that Israel is displaying a blatant disregard for God's provisions for the poor. The poor are exploited for the benefit of the rich who enjoy themselves and see it as no conflict with their religion. We'll see this combination of economic injustice and corrupt religion come back again and again in the book of Amos. Now, in the verses that follow, the offensiveness of this becomes really clear. God reminds Israel of their history. Have a look at verse 9. He talks about how he destroyed the Amorite. He's talking about how he, he got rid of the nations and brought them in so that they could have the land. And verse 10, he talks about how he brought them up out of Egypt in the Exodus. That was kind of a nice thing to do. And he led them 40 years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. God had made Israel what what Israel was. Israel was meant to be his. Verse 11 is actually saying the same point, but we'll need to slow down on it. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? Now, what's going on with Nazarites? Uh, Don't feel bad if you don't know about them. They're not that big a figure in the Old Testament, but it's worth understanding. Nazarites are mentioned a few times in the Old Testament. They were basically people set apart for special service to God. 
Uh, They were distinguished by never cutting their hair, not going near the dead, and not drinking any wine. Um, When I was younger, I went to Thailand for a little while, uh, as you do when you're 18, and all over Thailand you see monks uh, who are obvious because of their orange robes and their shaved heads. Has anybody seen that? You know what I'm... Yeah, some of you? Okay. It's kind of obvious. I think that's a bit like the Nazarites. They were figures who were kind of obvious. They were marked out as specially devoted to God in particular ways. So why are they mentioned here? Why does God draw attention to the fact that he gave Israel prophets and Nazarites? Well, I think it's because these figures kind of symbolized their identity as God's special people. In the same way as Thai monks kind of symbolically say something about the whole society, the existence of the prophets and the Nazarites kind of said something about who Israel was, that it was a people that belonged to God. You see, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, the whole purpose was for Israel to be special, to be his people. If we were back in Exodus, I'll just let you know what it says, but in Exodus 19, right when they get to Mount Sinai, God announces the whole purpose of it. And he says, if you'll obey my commands, you'll be for me a treasured possession, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. We've heard those words before tonight applied to Christians, but they were first Israel's. You see, the point of God's election of Israel was for them to be special, holy, different. And that's what makes Israel's rejection of the law so ugly. Because it's not just a rejection of random rules. It's a rejection of Israel's identity of God's calling. That's what Amos is making really clear in verse 12, the next verse. Isn't it so, he says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. What this is, you see, is a refusal to be the people God intended, a perverse rebellion against God's calling, forcing the Nazarites to drink wine and prohibiting the prophets from prophesying It amounts to just rejecting, spitting on their identity as God's treasured possession. It would be like forcing Thai monks to grow their hair and tearing up their robes. Can you see the offensiveness of this to God? And that's why God says, judgment will fall. And it's terrifying. I will crush you, says God, like a cart. That is loaded up and weighed down. No one will escape. No one will stand. Even the bravest warriors will flee away naked on that day. There will be fear and humiliation and death. That's awful, isn't it? But it's awful because Israel's rejection of God is awful. We read the first two verses of chapter 3 as well. Uh, and that's because they kind of cap off what's going on here. In three one, God addresses a new word to the whole company of his people. And in 3.2, he makes it really clear. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth 
Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. It's horrifying. Israel's election, the fact that God had entered an into an intimate relationship with Israel. The word for chosen there is just known. You only have I known. He knew Israel. It didn't mean Israel was safe. In fact, it meant the opposite. Rather than leading to life, God's relationship with Israel revealed her sinfulness and exposed her to judgment. The nations around about certainly failed disastrously to live in the way God had made them to. But Israel's failure was deeper and more personal. It amounted to a deliberate refusal of God's calling. It's one thing to reject God impersonally like the nations did. It's quite another thing to look God in the eye and say, we don't want a part of that. Well, that's our passage. How does it impact us today? As I've read and thought about this passage over the past week, I've been struck by and troubled by the parallels between Israel and the society in which we live. For Australian society, like most of the so-called Western world, is more and more what's been called post-Christian. Australia was never chosen like Israel was, but our culture was once deeply impacted by the gospel. The evidence for this is abundant. Our constitution acknowledges God. Our parliament says the Lord's Prayer every time it sits. In courts, we make promises to God under oath. Our laws have all sorts of provisions for Christian churches and so on. And yet we are increasingly turning our backs on this heritage in ways that eerily resemble Amos chapter 2. No religion is ridiculed in public as frequently and viciously. Christian moral thinking is seen by many of the elites, at least, as not just old-fashioned but detestable. It's particularly obvious in relation to things like marriage and sexuality, but in many other ways as well. We have become completely comfortable as a society with things that Christian faith would see as offensive to God. We herd the poorest people like sheep into cages on remote islands. We run the government on the back of poker machine taxes that harvest the income of the working class. We have become untroubled by the practice of abortion. And we have a cultural addiction to sexual depravity which sustains a vast and appalling industry of pornography and sex trafficking. And there is a willfulness in this rejection of biblical moral principles, which eerily reminds me of what we read here in Amos. But most troubling of all, we are becoming far more uncomfortable with hearing dissenting voices. There are increasingly moves to make it more difficult for Christians to speak in criticism. I don't know if you saw Q&A or followed the reaction last week. Um, Obviously, things are not totally gone, right? The Archbishop could speak on public TV. And yet, there was a fair degree of outrage that anyone would say anything like some of the things he said. There are some conversations you just aren't allowed to have anymore. 
Some aspects of proposed anti-vilification and anti-discrimination legislation, again, eerily echo what we read here about how they made the Nazarites drink wine and they commanded the prophets not to prophesy. It is, you're not allowed in a lot of places now to tell people about Jesus. And this should be deeply troubling because what Amos shows us is that it is a fearful thing for a society to turn its back on God after it has been known by him. It is inexcusable. Now, of course, people don't have to think this is what they're doing. The issue is certainly not whether we're religious or not. Religion can easily actually be at the heart of the problem. The society that Amos rebuked was still deeply religious. They lay down on their garments taken in pledge in the house of their God. Their culture was littered with religious artifacts and buildings and priests. I have no doubt that there were many in Israel who, saw them, who still saw themselves as the Lord's society, just like people still speak of Australia as a Christian nation. And yet they had turned their backs on God just as we are doing. And what makes us imagine then that we will escape judgment? We will not. It is a fearful thing for a society to have known God and then rejected him. But of course, we can't stop with our society Because when we think about election, God's choosing, the spotlight ought to shine first and foremost not on a culture that has only ever been partly Christianized, but on the church. Because as we saw from 1 Peter in the story of the Bible, it's the church that inherits Israel's calling. You are a chosen people. They're the titles God gave Israel. But after what we've read in Amos, shouldn't these words be more terrifying than inspiring? Because what that calling did to Israel ultimately was to bring her sin into focus and expose her to God's judgment. It was a glorious, incredible honor to be known by God, his treasured possession, and yet Israel rebelled against it, and what makes us imagine that we can do anything different? Can we live up to that calling? Can we be a light to the nations? Can we do what 1 Peter calls us to, to live such good lives among the pagans that that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us? Can we do that? I don't know about you, but I think we should beware of assuming that that is simply within our power, that that's easy for us. Because in so many ways, we are just like Israel. The church is just like Israel. How easy it is for us to get tired of being different. How easily we feel ashamed of our faith and want to distance ourselves from those who publicly display it. To remain pure in the face of scorn and pressure. To be generous with our money when those around us are doing so much better. To care for the needy in the way God calls us to. I mean, the church 
has hardly had a perfect track record when it comes to defending the poor and vulnerable. To keep welcoming and opening ourselves up to others when we are tired and needy ourselves, to keep coming to church and listening to the Word of God and supporting ministry when it's so often embarrassing and difficult and negative, like you may feel tonight is. How easy it is to become resentful of God's calling. The problem is that what we see here in Amos and what we see in our culture's rejection of Christianity is only what is true of the human heart for all of us. At a deep level of our being, we don't want God. We do not want his calling. Israel shows us what is true of all of us. When God's call comes, we all have a perverse tendency to reject it. Why? Where does this perverse rebelliousness come from? Is it from a sense that this calling is too big for us, too difficult, a burden too big to carry? Is it from a fear of being different to others? Or is it just from something deep in us that hates to accept God's rule and that wants to be independent? Whatever it is, it is an ugly thing. And it warrants God's judgment. We deserve God's judgment on our own. We deserve it. Because our sin is not just a rejection of random rules. It's a willful refusal of God's generosity to us. And can we then expect anything other than the judgment Amos speaks of? You only have I known, therefore I will punish you. Not on our own. On our own we can't expect anything other than that. But there is a difference between our calling and Israel's calling, a difference which changes everything. For we have been chosen, if we're Christian people, we've been known by God only in the wake of someone else who was chosen before us and who succeeded where we all failed. Jesus bore a burden of election greater than anyone who had gone before. At his birth, angels and prophets declared that he would be God's Messiah, a light to the Gentiles and salvation to the whole earth. Can you imagine the weight of that expectation? When he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, the Gospels tell us the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and the heavens were torn open, and a voice came, This is my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. What a terrifying intimacy with God. Could we have handled it? No. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the horrifying reality of God's election became crystal clear and he looked square in the face of suffering God's wrath undeserved and his, dis- 
his distress was so intense that he sweated blood. He did not back away as the darkness fell and the hour that he was chosen for came near. And we who follow Jesus are God's chosen people only because of him, only because he was chosen first and he fulfilled his calling, only because we were chosen in Christ who accepted God's call upon his life and carried it to completion. And that means, brothers and sisters, that Amos chapter 2, and in fact all of Amos, does not have to be a word of judgment and condemnation for us. On our own, we have no more chance than Israel of fulfilling our calling. But Jesus is here and he has succeeded where we would certainly fail. And that means we can hear a different word than that we will be punished for our sins because our sins were taken from us by the one who was God's most treasured possession, his beloved son who bore them on the cross. And so instead we are free to hear Amos' words as a warning and a helpful rebuke rather than a death sentence. We're free to hear them as a powerful reminder, as God's passion for justice his hatred of exploitation, his desire for obedience and distinctiveness and for them to inspire us, not condemn us, to pursue these things and love these things. Jesus' perfect obedience can free us from the need to reject God's command. It's only, you see, when we cling to him that we will have any chance of fulfilling our calling to be God's people today and a light to our society. The church, you see, the church is not a community of chosen ones who are better and stronger than everyone else. The church is a community of those who know they are just as broken as everyone else, just as perversely resistant to God's call as anyone else, but who have come to know Jesus and have found in him mercy, and the freedom not to reject God's call any longer, but to listen to it and to love it. Brothers and sisters, just to finish, this is a witness that our world desperately needs because it is a fearful thing for a society to turn its back on God. And so let us pray that God would allow us to see Jesus clearly, and to hold fast to what he has done so that we will be free because of his mercy to live wonderful lives that really are a light in our world. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we are so thankful for you. Apart from you, we are lost, doomed to repeat Israel's failure. But because of you, we are free and we know we are loved and safe in your arms. Please give us the grace by your Holy Spirit to stay close to you so that we would 
have your words in our heart and allow them to transform our lives. Lord, we thank you for these words and ask that you would do your work in us. And we would really love it if this would change us deeply. And we pray it in your name. Amen.